So here we are after a day of practice, and you know each of us can see for ourselves what the experience is, what the result is. Um, I I have I have found uh, practicing in this style very beneficial, and so I was. Uh, looking forward to being able to share it with others and see, you know, what 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 would come with that. So I I live in a a very humble place, but the the proximity to the land around here has been um, profound in 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 showing me a, a, another way of practicing. And I didn't I didn't just learn it here. I, I started learning how to live in relationship with the land when, when I was in Australia. And so in, in the year 2000, I left the monastery and I spent some time in, a, in Wat Buddha Dhamma in Australia, which is um, a forest hermitage in a national park surrounded by three other national parks. So uh, it also had this huge acreage of wilderness that was uh, all around. And unlike this, which the bus stop is one block away, that place, you know, there was a there there was a a uh, a road to get into the property, and most of the time it was washboard, so that by the time you got there, it felt like your bones were separated from your ligaments. And the nearest city of any kind of prominence was two hours away, so. You know, here we we have this remarkable thing of being actually in a city and yet having access to wilderness like that. In that place, there the city was a, was quite a journey to get to. And so I came from England, and one of the reasons why I was interested in in being there was because you know I was born in L.A. and L.A. is a desert climate, and having been in England for 15 years, everything was saturated with damp. You know, I just wanted to dry out. So the the retreat manager at Wat Buddha Dhamma, you know, we were asking, you know, she said, so why why are you interested in coming? So I said, I want to dry out. You know, so one of the things that happens for for monastics is that we become phenomenally naive. (laughs) We're just out of the loop about, you know, languaging or what certain things mean in other contexts. And so she went... She went back to her uh, her board and said, "There's a nun who wants to come and dry out." And and they said, "Well, you know, it might be worth exploring exactly in what direction she's needing to dry out." So we had a good laugh about that. And when I when I went, you know, I've always felt very strong affinity with nature. But I grew up in L.A. You know, I grew up in the middle of a huge monstrous city. And so I actually didn't know very much about what it was to live in relationship with nature, though it was a good idea that I had. It was something that I really liked. So, and when I got there, I was apprehensive. It was unfamiliar, and I didn't know. And, you know, there was lots of poisonous snakes and spiders and all of that, and I didn't know their habitats, and I didn't know what to look out for. I was, I was just... It was all unfamiliar. And, and I don't know if there's been any sense of like, oh, this is lovely, but it's unfamiliar today, you know, or the weather is nice, but it's hot, or, you know, are there snakes here? Or, you know, that sense of you're, you're in unfamiliar territory and, and trying to feel your way into it, you know, uh, which is right. We need to feel our way into it. We can't just plow through, you know. We need to get a sense of, well, what is it like to actually be here? You know, and you know, and for me, it was gradual living in this place. So you know, I had a hut. This is a palace compared to my hut that I was living in in Australia. I had I've, eight huts would have been able to fit in that hut. 
okay? And I lived in that hut for two years, and I loved it. I just loved it because it was out in a place where all I could see was nature, and, and the spot was beautiful. So you had rocks and undulating movements of land, and, and there was a place where when it rained, it turned into a little uh, creek, and then there right beneath me was like a waterfall. And I just loved it. I loved it, I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. I so loved it. It was. I just loved it. It was wonderful. And Australia has all kinds of remarkable birds. So in this stone, which turned into a creek, was a tiny little indentation in the stone. And so I had made a determination that I was going to keep that little indentation filled up with water for the creatures. And, you know, it was like maybe that, that deep. And there was a there was a, a, a water that would collect from the roof, and so there was a rain barrel, so I could I carried the bucket over, so I didn't have to carry the water. You know, it didn't have electricity, it didn't have running water, it didn't have a toilet, it just was a hut, and so I'd carry the bucket of water to this little indentation in the rock, and it didn't take long, and everybody knew that that was a water hole, a reliable water hole, and you know, for me. I don't know about water holes in Australia and how precious a commodity water is. And, and then I would get to watch the different creatures that would come and show up. And the birds, huge flocks of birds, 20 or 30 birds that were this big, would come and drink out of this water hole. And um, wallabies would come, and goannas would come, and snakes would come, and ants would come. All kinds of creatures would come, and they knew that was a reliable water hole, and they would just come. And so I began to get a feeling for the different creatures that would come. And then there was one, it was a, it's called a gang gang. It's got a fluorescent red, like fire engine red, the male um, mohawk, and the female is gray. And they had a very distinctive call. And so I could hear them up and down the valley. And so... I would know that was them and they were coming to the water hole. And if I heard them and I had forgotten to put the water out, you know, to make sure that it was full, there was a feeling, oh, they're coming. I need to make sure to take care, you know. I need to take care. So just learning to observe and watching that you make a gesture of kindness to just offer some water and it's appreciated by an unfathomable number of creatures, you know. And then in the hot season, it was like, I think in some situations it was actually critical because the water dries up everywhere and there's just no water. And so, you know, animals die in the hot season. Everybody dies in the hot season in Australia. It's just, it's just formidably difficult. So I began to get a feeling of more comfort and willing to explore and look and have a sense of things. And then I was there and there was a Korean Zen nun who was there also. And the Korean practitioners, they have a a level of determination that puts virtually every other tradition I have ever met, like I've never seen anything quite like it before in my life. It's formidable determination, absolutely formidable. And one of the practices that this nun loved to do was tiger practice. Have you ever heard of that? Tiger practice is when you um, determine for a length of time not to lie down and not to sleep. So a week, ten days, two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months, three months. I mean, it's just remarkable. So she was going to be doing this practice, and for some reason, which it just sometimes I have intuitions that don't make any logical sense to me at all about why this is compelling and I felt very taken with the idea of doing this and so I decided I, I needed to negotiate with her because I had all kinds of health problems and if I if I pushed if I pushed it could cause a relapse and I could be struggling for three to six months so I knew I couldn't do this by pushing I mean I had to find another way so I was determined, and she was willing to negotiate with me, and so I found something that I thought would work. Yeah. So meanwhile, we're not sleeping. 
so I'm in the meditation hall all night. And outside the meditation hall is an ant's nest. And the ant's hill was spilling off onto the, onto the path. And being from Los Angeles, I thought, it doesn't belong here. It should be in a different place. So I will just take the broom and gently sweep the bottom of the ant's hill and gently encourage them to relocate. Okay? So I go get the broom and I start sweeping the ant's hill. And within, you know, a few seconds, the whole ant hill is on red alert, mobilize, eat and destroy. They come charging at me and they're going to eat me. So I put the broom back against the hall, lean it against the hall, and recognized that I had made a mistake and then decided that I needed to give them some metta, which is another unbelievable thing to think that you can walk into a charging anthill and give them metta and that somehow that's going to be okay. Only somebody in L.A. <laughs> would think a thought like that. Not somebody born in Australia would not think a thought like that. So I went right back into the charging ants' hill with a heart of care and kindness and respect. And not one ant bit me. Not one. Not one ant bit me. And I was completely blown away, both by the magnitude of what I had just done and by what they had just done. That they just actually got it on a dime, that my intention had shifted and my motivation was different. So I, 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 was, I was really struck, very impacted by this. And my little hut, which I loved, had a Cadillac walking path right next to it. It was like 80 feet long with the softest, silkiest white sand in the perfect direction with the perfect view that was completely level and like four feet wide. I mean, it was Cadillac, Cadillac, the most... Cadillac walking path I have ever experienced, except for I'm going to take you tomorrow. This is more Cadillac. And I would love my walking path, and so I'd walk back and forth, you know, morning, noon, and night. I'd walk backwards, I'd walk with my eyes closed, I'd walk with my eyes opened. It was my path, and I felt completely relaxed. I was totally at ease and comfortable on my path. But 15 feet away from my path was a bull ant's nest. Now, I also learned very quickly after I got to Australia, there's about 10,000 different kinds of ants, and they range in size from microscopic to ants that are this big, and those are the bull ants, and they've got pitchforks for prongs in the front, and they inject this poison into you, and if you are once bitten by a bull ant, you forever are careful and phenomenally respectful of them because it hurts like the dickens for for a week it just is excruciatingly painful and then the next week it itches so bad you just want to you know it's just crazy itchy so and they are territorial and phenomenally aggressive and they don't care how big you are it doesn't matter that they're this big they will come after you if you are in their space they will come after you and they will get you Okay, so I had to watch out for them because where the path that connected my path to the path down to where the library and the meditation hall and the kitchen was right next to them, and that was their path. And I had I had my headlights on, and any time it was dusk, I was looking out for them because if I didn't, it was extraordinary sensation for two weeks. Okay, that was their path, and I needed to watch out. Okay. But I often saw them on my path, and they would come and they would find dead bugs to dig, drag back to their nest, and I never worried, because on my path, they stayed out of my way. Now, this is an ant. They have a sense of what is their boundary, what is theirs, what's not theirs. Inside of their space, they're very aggressive and territorial. When it's not in their space, they take care to stay out of the way. 
So the combination of these two things actually completely blew me away. Because up until that point, I had lived with the assumption that respect was something that you gave when somebody earned it. And what the ants were teaching me was the possibility of living with respect just because that's a beautiful way of being. That you don't have to wait to see if somebody is worthy of your respect before that is the attitude that you bring forward. It was a complete revolution, revelation to my thinking. It had never occurred to me that you could just live with respect. But it also made me realize that I had an awful lot to learn from everything. This lesson that the ants taught me was profound. And I learned from the rocks, and I learned from the water, and I learned from the trees, and I learned from the goannas, and I learned from the mosquitoes, I learned from the frogs. I learned from everything. And I, without realizing it, you know, had all kinds of ideas about who I was to learn from. You know, who somebody needed to be until they were worthy for me to be able to learn from them. And when I was living in the bush, I began to recognize that nobody needs to be worthy to teach me. I need to be open to see and receive. And if I stop this idea that something has to be worthy, then there's lessons and learning everywhere. 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 In everything. So this beginning was like the beginning of me getting a sense of, well, how is it that you can learn from how is it that you can learn from the frogs and the leaves and the trees and the water and the goannas and the ants and the rocks? How can you, how can you relax? How can I relax a posture of me being somebody who knows and be in relationship with what's happening around me so that I can experience what is arising as support, as instruction, as a mirror of my mind. So the ants was huge. And right before I went to Australia, I had taken the Bodhisattva vows with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and that was also huge. Because before that, I had this absolute sense that there's, there is suffering and there is a way of getting out of it. And I was like hell-bent and determined to get out of suffering. But in the years of living in the community, there was something about the way that configured in my own body, heart, and mind where it, it created the causes for more suffering. And I couldn't actually figure out how. I just could see that it was doing that. And so I had this intuition that doing more of the same is not going to create a different result. I needed to find a different way of doing something. I needed a different approach. And so it was an intuition that there is something about changing the motivation rather than getting out of suffering. The something about the, the, the shifting to meet suffering, receive suffering, be present with suffering, and doing that as a blessing for all beings. And so the combination of nature and the ants and the bodhisattva vows and being in this foreign landscape really was impactful. And I began to see what started to happen is, 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 is that it, it's, it, it, first there was me as a foreigner in this landscape. And then it was me as a foreigner in a friendly landscape. And then it was me with kinship. And then there was not me and nature, there was just nature. There was just nature. 
there, it wasn't that the goanna was a, a piece of nature that was outside of me. There was just nature that I was arising in, the goanna was arising in, the air, the wind, the fire, the, the birds, the water, the ants. We were all arising in nature. None of us had a particularly distinct, prominent role. We just were arising in nature, and that arising would exist for a while and then dissolve. And then as this sense of me started to soften and then kind of like fade, I began to see that what I was observing in nature was a direct expression of what was happening in my mind. And so it was through this like way where I could let the way that the twigs fell or the, or the, the leaves be instruction for what was happening internally. And so I, it was like learning how to be in relationship with nature so that I'm reading everything as an expression of my mind. Everything was teaching me. The position of the twigs, where the leaves were, when the trees had sap, the cloud formations, the, the lightning, the th- everything, everything. There was no sense of me as a distinct and separate entity from the nature that I was part of. And through that, I began to get a feeling or an intuition or a sense of how is it that I can be and so that all of this is is a clear description of what's going on in my mind and instructing me how I need to focus and pay attention. So one of the things that happened when I first got to that land was that was um, there was a a walk a reconciliation walk from the Zen center to the Wat Buddha Dhamma which was a Theravadan based center and the the idea was it was all, all around the the idea of reconciliation which was you know the Aboriginal people in Australia had been brutalized and there had been no um, like collective acknowledgement of that. And this was happening at a time where that was active and people were interested in, in bringing this to consciousness and, and making gestures. Um, and so, and on this walk, there was a mountain, a sacred mountain that was, uh, was pointed out and it was described why it was a sacred mountain and, and the significance to the, to the many different Aboriginal people who were in, in that larger region. And, Again, there was just this very strong intuition. I would like to go and pay respects and, uh, on a pilgrimage to that mountain. So I contacted the person who was the, um, the one who was leading us on the walk and who was the one who gave us the initial instruction about what this mountain meant. And, and I just said, I, I'd like to go. And here was somebody who, who had walked barefoot in the outback of Australia for 20 years, okay? He knew bush like he knew the, the back of his hand. It, it, and it was something that he felt completely comfortable with. And he felt very at ease in, in walking uh, alone, barefoot, off the path in the Australian wilderness, which is like nobody does that, you know. That's just not something that white people do, you know. And I told him my aspiration, and his sense was his, his tone, like, dropped, like, three octaves and he became very very sober and and somber and he said do you have any idea in the world what you're asking to do and it's like I just want to go to the mountain he said it's like no this is a sacred mountain you can't just decide you want to go and go you know it doesn't work that way with sacred mountains you can't go unless the mountain gives you permission to go. So it's like, you know, there's shivers up and down my spine. I'm listening to him talk. And then he started telling me all of the times that he tried to go and he was not allowed to go. You know, so here's this person who knows the bush like the back of his hand. And, you know, the weirdest things are happening. Like he can't get there and he gets lost or there's no clouds in the sky and then these clouds come and then all of a sudden it's raining and then all of a sudden it's lashing and then there's rocks the size of footballs that are being hurled at his car 
So he turns around, drives a hundred feet down the road, and there's no rain. I mean, it's just like way weird, you know? But it's like the mountain says, no, you don't push the mountain, you know? You don't push your way past the mountain. The mountain says, no, just drop it. So, okay, so what do I know from asking the mountain? So, you know, I thought, oh, you know, I'll go to the I Ching. So the I Ching reading was, I interpreted is, is that if I'm willing to die, then I'll be able to go. It's like, whoa. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure the I Ching is really accurate, so I need to figure out another way of asking permission from the mountain. So, how do you ask permission? So I thought, okay, I'll just ask. If, you know, if the mountain gives me permission to pay my respects and go on pilgrimage, please give me a sign. <coughs> and an owl flew directly over my head, and a beetle buzzed my cheek so that I could feel its wings when I when the thought of give me a sign, sign, that's when those things happen. And I thought, this is so weird and so synchronistic, I need another sign. <laughs> it's like, I can't handle this. Like, my system is completely shutting down. I can't cope. I need another sign. So, the next morning, I go out to my Cadillac walking meditation path, and a wallaby had turned in the path and with its tail had made a mark. And that's a sign. So I'm walking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth trying to understand the sign. And it said, yes, yes, yes. Yenga was the name of the mountain. And it had a little picture of a, a, an image of a stick drawing of a person with their head on top of the mountain. So I think, this is a sign. I get it. This is a sign and this is permission. And then the next day I come out and there's a worm like, you know, very close to that original picture and is moving and doing all these things. And I see it. I'm watching it. And I can't make heads or tails out of <coughs> this design. So Uncle Max comes up not long after and I'd drawn pictures in my book about these both of these things. So Uncle Max is an Aboriginal elder who was initiated by Aboriginal elders, and so he knows the law of the land and the way of the land. And so I thought he'll understand and he'll be able to tell me what this means and if, in fact, my interpretations are correct. So I tell him all the story and what happened, and I show him the first drawing. He says, yes, this is permission. And I said, and what's that? He said, these are all the obstacles that you're going to have to go through, and that is the angel that's going to take you there. And I said, and how do I know? He said, you will know. So it's like, this was the beginning of two years of the land giving me instructions on what I needed to do to prepare to go up the mountain. And this was so outside of the box of what I was used to. You know, I felt like this is really edgy, you know. Am I going nuts? Should I disrobe? Should I go hang out with the Aborigines? Should I become a Jungian? Should I become a Tibetan? What should I do? Because it's like, uh, this is not, as far as I understand, fitting into the Theravadan box that I'm familiar with. You know, getting instruction from the land about how to practice is not part of my framework of what I understand is correct practice. But there was nothing that was telling me that was saying this is wrong or harmful or injurious or bad. And in fact, what was happening was the instruction was very precise. And there was all kinds of layers of my mind-body that I needed to open up and to have more conversation with so that I was more in flow with myself and as a result with nature. And this was like you know, regular occurrences where I would get instruction of things that I needed to do to, to work on these different levels, you know. Because it wasn't just a question for me of learning how to focus and developing the concentration to penetrate through. It was like bringing the whole of my being into the equation that had somehow been left aside. 
and I don't know exactly how it had got left aside, but it had been. And this was a kind of like opening the doors to parts of me that I didn't have easy access to, so that there was a whole mind-body person coming together in this one uh, process. And the instruction, some of it was funny, and some of it was scary, and some of it was vulnerable, and some of it was wonderful, and, and all of it was growthful. And so eventually the signs came together very, very uh, clearly that it was time to go up the mountain. And it, it was possible to make the journey. And all kinds of things came together in a kind of time framework. That living in the outback in the bush of Australia is very different from living in a modern American place. It's like there's a totally different time sense about what it, how, how things happen and what is needed in order to get anything done. And as challenged as I am as an alms mendicant without having a steward living nearby, living in the middle of a national park is like, I don't know what, like 500 times more complicated to do anything. It's incredible. And in a window of like a day and a half, all of these different things came together that was just like, there's no way that I would have been able to orchestrate this through my own volition. It's just not possible, you know. And it all came together and we were, we were going to the mountain. And we made it to the top. And we did ceremony all the way up the top of the mountain. And I had been making Kuan Yin statues, and we had, uh, we were chanting, and we were asking forgiveness and permission, and we made it all the way up to the top of the mountain. And it was a, it was a very remarkable journey. And coming down the mountain, um, I, there was a, we, it was like a day and a half. We, it was a day and a half to get up and then an incredibly long day to get down. And when I get tired, my energy drops out. And sometimes, you know, I'm a little bit not focused and I don't see very clearly and I can't think very clearly. And, and that was happening. It was towards the end of the day and we needed to get to a certain place where we could stop and we hadn't got there yet. And, and I just grabbed a branch and broke it and thought, you know, I can use it as a walking stick. But I didn't ask permission. And that stick... I don't quite know exactly what happened, but it, 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 it catapulted me in the air. I t flipped, did a full flip. I landed on my feet, but I ended up with a bruise this big on my leg. And when I realized, it took me a while to, to track, follow back what had happened, but here we were on a sacred pilgrimage, and I grabbed something without asking. And the consequences were immediate, you know. And it's like, this is what happens. When you come in relationship with the land, and then you breach that, there are consequences. Now, nothing was broken. I had a bruise. But the pain of the bruise stopped aching when I made the connection of the mistake that I've made. So it's like, this is what happens. You know, the nature will embrace you and will smack you if there's a, a breach, some kind of a breach of trust. And so all of this was very, very, very instructive for me in terms of how is it that I can be in relationship with the land and have that inform my own practice. And so I, I remember coming down the mountain thinking, you know, I don't need to disrobe, and I don't need to go hang out with the Aborigines, and I don't need to become a Jungian, and I don't need to become a Tibetan. I can just be exactly the way I am and let all of this stuff flow through me. And then I thought, well, you know, that's your own thinking. But, you know, what does Ajahn Sumedho have to say about this? You know, what does Ajahn Sujito have to say about this? You know, are they going to agree? So I made a big, huge effort to go find Ajahn Sujito when he was teaching at IMS and to tell him all what had been happening on all the journeys that I'd been on when I was in Australia and see, and I was half expecting him to pull me up by my bootstraps and say, 
pull it together, get yourself sorted. This is not Theravadan practice. You know, knock it off. And, you know, he loved it. He totally loved it. He thought it was fabulous. And I thought, well, you know, Ajahn Sajito is a big, big, but he's not as big as the big one, so I have to go do the same with Ajahn Sumedho. And, and so I went, and next time I was passing through England, I went and I said the same. I told everything that had happened. And again, thinking that somehow there was going to be some kind of a reprimand or some kind of a, of a, you know, pull it together. You know, why are you so all over the place? You know, just pull it together. Just why don't you practice the way you're supposed to practice, the way they tell you to practice in the book, you know. And Ajahn Sumedho, his response, as he said to me, he said, you know, you can make a problem out of this if you want to. And he said it three times. You can make a problem out of this if you want to. You can make a problem out of this if you want to. But what happens when the sense of self falls away is exactly what you're describing. This is the result. When there ceases to be a tenacious grip around me as a separate independent entity, this is that there's flow. There's just flow. And in that flow, different people have different affinities about what they feel a sense of kinship with and where they learn. Okay? So somehow through being in Australia, I learned about doing ceremony that impacted the land. I saw Uncle Max do this, and we were doing this a number of times. It's like in the same way where we bring attention to our own body, it can shift. When we feel something in the land, we can bring attention to it and it can shift. It can shift in the land. Okay? So another time I was doing another retreat also in Australia and it was at a Franciscan center. And so I figured, you know, a Franciscan center, there are monks there. This is going to be a good place. It wasn't a good place. And there were people who were having really um, disturbing dreams. And some of the women were having all kinds of stuff arising in their minds about sexual abuse. And I said, okay, I'm doing ceremony. You can be part of it or not, but I'm going to be doing some ceremony and you can join. And so I just, it, out of just pure intuition, nobody ever told me how to do this, of just what is it that feels that's needed? We need to have some fire, we need to burn some of the local branches, we need to do some chanting, we need to bring some attention, we need to do all of this. And we, were, we had, there was this two huge trees in the middle of this courtyard, and there were no birds in this compound, none, okay? And we did the ceremony, and the next day the birds were there. And everyone started sleeping better, and there were no weird dreams. Their bodies were more peaceful. There was something energetically that was stuck in the space, and then I found out later, because these Franciscan monks were abusing the boys that they had there, and the energy of the abuse was, was stuck in the land, in the same way that sometimes our bodies can get stuck with um, things and it doesn't flow through. And we need to actually work with our bodies energetically to let some of the experiences that we've had release because they're stuck. Well, the land is very similar to the way a body is in the sense that when there's the clarity to bring attention to it, then things can shift, okay? So I came back to England having gone through all of this, and the sense of there's, there are dimensions that are not frequently spoken about by the teachers that I have that I can see have as much validity as the ones that they do speak about. Yeah? And yet, in the right situation for me, these different things flow through. They all flow through. It's not like this is real and this is not real. They all flow through. And what I can appreciate is, is, is that when you're dealing with stuff that you can name and you can label and you can um, talk about in language that is e less easy to misunderstand, there's a, a kind of um, a congruency around certain kinds of safety that I feel in a lot of ways is responsible. 
So the kind of classic teachings that we get in the Theravada tradition keeps us on a straight and narrow so that we're not off with the fairies. Because with some of this other stuff, there, there isn't clear way of giving feedback other than if you understand it yourself and can intuit what's right, what's not right, or what doesn't feel quite right. But with other meditation instructions, there, there are more clear signals about what is correct way of practicing and what isn't correct. So the, the, the room for error, I think, is less when you stay with classical teachings. And so I have a lot of respect for the classical teachings and for the people who teach in a classical way. But my own personal experience takes me outside of the box. I don't fit into just only that as the sum total of the description of my experience. Right? So I was on a bus going to see a Tibetan doctor. Who uh, This Tibetan doctor is totally amazing. I just think she's awesome. Because she feels my pulses and she looks at my tongue and she smells my urine and she can tell me everything that's going on with my health. <laughs> And she gives me medicine that helps me in like in very, very clear ways. It's very great. So she's phenomenal. You know, she's just great. So I was on my way to see her, and there was a Tibetan man who was the bus driver. And he saw me, and he was in ecstasy, you know. Because a monastic for a Buddhist, a traditional Buddhist, is like a really auspicious, big deal thing, you know. So he was, he was great. So he was like, so what tradition are you in? And it's like, well, I ordained in the forest tradition. I've taken the Bodhisattva vows. I live in accordance with nature. He said, oh, I get it. You're part of the emptiness tradition. It's like, yes, you know, yes. It's like, you know, I understand the, that when you, your mind drops into that space where you aren't solidified, everything, everything belongs. Everything belongs there. There isn't anything that you need to throw out that, is, that somehow doesn't belong. But I haven't found a description of a tradition that is equal to the kinds of range of what I experience. So certainly I ordained in the forest tradition. I'm a Theravadan nun. I am a bhikkhuni. These are all places have reality in them, but none of them give the sum total of a container that I can feel, oh, this completely describes where I belong. So I, I'm in this world of blending, of edges, of exploration, of inquiry, of curiosity. Wanting to know if I practice in this way, what is the result? What is the result in myself and what is in the result in the people around me? What happens when I don't define myself by a box, but I am constantly meeting the present moment with the skills and the resources that I have, and I bring forward the various different ways of knowing into that responsiveness and what is the result well it's too early to say because it's too young of an experiment you know but if I were to describe all of the different things that I'm interested in and the one thing that they come together around it's an intricative awakening it's an awakening that integrates everything. So, in the classical teachings and the classical practice, there's an awful lot of clarity about the way of focusing attention and bringing the clarity of that focus to being able to see clearly what's arising and work with it in a skillful way. And this practice is 
tried, it's proven, it's tested, it works, and that's why we're encouraged to practice this way. Okay? And with some of the things that I've been through, it hasn't been possible to practice this way. Because for whatever reason, my capacity to focus has been kind of not working so well. And so one of the things about the way of practicing in nature, in the way that I do, is it doesn't require that kind of focus. Because what's happening for me when I go into the Garden of the Gods and I relax, is I'm not focusing, I'm resting. The attention is not sharp, it's opening. And as it's opening, it's relaxing. And so rather than me harnessing my interest to narrow it, what's happening is I'm relaxing into something that feels deeply and profoundly comfortable. And so the experience is is of attention opening and resting into something that is increasingly vast. The more I relax the more attention is resting in something that is vast. The more that vast is embraced, is received, is allowed, the more that it is able to hold everything that is arising. There isn't a directive of me doing something. There is a relaxation into what is already present. Now, there are greater and lesser capacities of me to drop in and access that open field of awareness. But when I do, I come to a place where there's this kind of recognition or a sense, a deep, profound sense, there are no problems. Now, with the kind of stuff that I've been through, with the kind of agony that our world is facing, with the kind of chaos our world is dealing with right now, It's awesome. It's a totally awesome thing to touch into a spaciousness of mind that is clear, is present, is attentive, and is not resisting anything. There's no battle with anything. This capacity to rest into this awareness then informs my ability to engage with the specifics as they arise. It's like I have this as a reference point, as a place to renew myself from, as a place to restore. And that restoration and reference point gives me capacity and discernment to navigate how do I I choose what's right, what is needed here, what do I need to back away from, what do I need to step forward and engage with. But it's not coming from a place of everything compartmentalized, it's coming from a place of there are no problems, it's okay, resting, it's okay. Now, I can speak quite frankly frankly and quite at length about, you know, psychologically and developmentally, there's more work for me to do in terms of integrating and finding this intricative awakening on the different levels of my own being, to actually understand that and let that understanding penetrate through the different levels of my being. Okay? I'm not done yet with that. But what I do sense is is in that space of resting, it's not as if those pieces of information are irrelevant, but it's almost as if there's an overarching um, field where they are contextualized. And in that field where they're contextualized, it's it's not the whole picture. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of the picture. And so there's a sense of, of, of recognizing or touching or kind of or tasting a, 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 um, a sense of wholeness or perfection. And yet, in ordinary consciousness, seeing there's perfection and there's still work that needs to be done. 
and they simultaneously coexist. It's not like one erases the other, but they simultaneously coexist. And for me, living here, where I do, where I go into the gardens, just like we did today, where I get on my bike and I go right there and I park my bike just like we did and I go hang out in that canyon, has been very much part of the way in which these things are are landing and integrating and uh, finding their own level. So I don't know if this is gibberish to you, gobbledygook, whether it makes sense or it is dissonant. I don't. I can't. I can't tell. But I'm just just speaking about my own experience about why I'm here doing this and why I practice in this way and, and, and how it is that I don't see myself fitting into a particular uh, thread that I, I haven't found yet one that, that fits all of the different things that are true in my experience. You know? And why I feel willing to be in this um, kind of edgy exploration because it feels like it's it's very powerful and it feels um, very very wholesome and very right even if I don't have any capacity to predict trajectory of where it's going or you know, what's going to happen. It feels absolutely right to, to, to not require of myself that I, that I um, that I cut out parts that feel so important that they belong. So, here we are, we survived the day, we got to see skunk, <laughs> I've never seen skunk drink out of the water before. There's a whole family of skunks, they're little, so there's, they're, these guys are juveniles and there's there's a bigger one, Mama and Papa. Yeah, they're just. And there's something about you know, for me, I just. There's such absolute delight when the different creatures can come and feel safe, you know, and the deer hang out. You know, we've got eight people here, and they don't care, because they know we're okay. You know, we're safe. I just, it just delights me that that happens just delights me. Yeah. Did you see a lizard drinking in Australia? Did I see what? A lizard I don't remember seeing a lizard, but I do remember during that hot season. There were some things that happened that were just really um, very, very touching because you know everything is so desperate with the water but you know everybody in Australia understands about conserving water they don't waste it but they're so hot you know so it was one of these days I think it was 118 degrees out or something and a wallaby okay came to the pond and they've got big feet okay so the pond is this big and this deep. So the wallaby came with his two feet and he sat in the puddle with his tail and he took the water and would put a drop onto his nose, onto his face, and it would dribble into the... It was just unbelievable watching that. It's just amazing. Yeah. I don't remember seeing lizards. I remember seeing ants drink. 
And I remember seeing the marks of snakes drinking. I don't think I actually ever saw snakes. But the other thing that blew me away was is that the gang gangs used to usually come and they drink and then they leave and they're 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 partnered. So they come in pairs. And you know, they'd usually stay a few minutes and they'd go. And once they came and they waited 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 and I thought, what are they waiting for? And I waited as they waited. Another pair came from another they had a deep drinking date. And and, and they had communicated to meet at the waterhole and they were going to drink together. They waited for the other part pair to come. And when all four were together, they all drank, and then they all left. And it's like, wow. <laughs> you know? What we know is like so little compared to what is to be known in this world. It's awesome, you know. We think we're the only ones that communicate. It's just like, I don't know how we ended up being so <laughs> unbelievably arrogant. <laughs> What's that? Ignorant. Yeah. And so, you know, slowing down enough to be able to tune into the rocks is a very different kind of speed than the kind of speed that we normally operate. And rocks communicate. They absolutely communicate. They don't communicate in the same way that a bird will or a dog will. But they will communicate. And if we are, or for myself, learning how to open and be in communication, it's like a whole other level of understanding what family means, you know? And what does it mean to be alone? And who is it that I can receive instruction from? You know? Very, very, very different understanding. So, you know, when I speak, when I teach, whatever I do, it's, you know, it's, you're in, you're, it's, I speak with things just offered. And some things are likely resonating, some things not, some things maybe you need some time to sit with to see where they land. I don't, ask anybody to take on board what it is that I'm saying. I don't want you to believe me. But I'm just uh, speaking about my experience with the intention that it's useful. That in somehow giving a description of my own internal landscape, it helps give you both resource as well as comfort and um, friendship, spiritual friendship in your own explorations. And I imagine there will be some places there will be uh, resonances and some places it might look different. But my intention is to support each of us in the way that I, I, I know how, which is to follow my intuition and, and to support each person finding their path that is the right one for you. You know, I don't want you to follow my path. I want you to find your path and to let that flourish and to become confident and strong and clear about what that is. And when I see that happening, I feel that, that that's a good result. And so it's with that intention and that I wanted to do this, you know, create this space. And it's with that intention that I speak. So. And I'm just very delighted that you had the
courage, the faith, the confidence, the chutzpah, the curiosity to all come. So, we'll see what happens. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.